Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Catch Kate podcast. This week, we have another interview with uh, Michael White, who runs rural courses in the UK and also some workshops in Ireland, all to do with self-sufficiency, mushrooms, bees. So you'll be very excited to hear uh, today's episode. Uh, Michael, welcome. How are you today? I'm very well. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for having me on. Very good. Anytime somebody says B, I'm like, oh my God, it's such, it's a pun. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. So would you like to tell us a little bit about um, your work in nature? Um, It crosses a wide variety, right? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I come from a, a farming background. I was raised on a small holding. So from a very young age, I was introduced to raising animals and and vegetables and foraging also. And then as I got older, I developed those skills. And then in my early 20s, I sort of basically fully immersed myself uh, and my family, rightly or wrongly, in in the joys of self-sufficiency and really, really um, trying to make an effort to live off the land in a very serious way. and then, yeah, my work has has stemmed out of that. So that's that's my lifestyle and and the background that then brings me to sharing these skills um, with with lots of people. And I meet lots of wonderful people in that way. I'm very lucky. Cool. And would you say, like, you know, a lot of people actually that I get on the podcast, they talk about their connection to nature as a child, very strong, and then they end up moving away from it, and then they end up like sometimes like mental health stuff comes up and then they end up coming back to it so for you did you find that you swayed away or was there that strong pull always and you stayed in it yeah I I never really strayed and I think my uh, my love and my connection was only confirmed by my experiences so I was I think an unusual child compared to other people I knew um I, I was just mad about everything natural. So my dad kept bees and I just couldn't stay away from it. I was keeping bees from when I was nine years old and he had ferrets and we kept sheep. And I just I just wanted to be in amongst it all the time. You know, um, if he was getting up to do something in the morning um, and I knew he was, I'd get up before it was light. I'd sit at the end of his bed. I'd, I'd wait for him to, to get up. I was so that excited about going out and doing whatever it was we were doing that day so for whatever reason I was just I was mad about it and so it's always just a big part of my growing up um, because I wanted it to be but I went and studied music in London for four years so I studied to be a classical singer and so rather than taking me away from that um, that grounding in nature that only really confirmed it for me so I was really I really pined for the natural environment for those connections you know I felt lonely I'd like I remember walking around the streets and feeling lonely and thinking you know at home I know the names of the trees and the plants and the mushrooms and you know um I wouldn't like to say they were my friends, but I felt like I was always in company, that I knew my environment and that I was at home, truly at home. And I felt so adrift in that built up 
concrete landscape. And so I gravitated to green spaces, parks uh, where I lived. There was uh, part of the Thames um, in Hackney Marshes um, flowed through there. And I would spend my, spend my time down in the river hunting for snails to eat and elderflowers to make into cordial and fishing in the in the canals and things like that. So I, um, by the time the four years of studying was up, I had no doubt that I needed to go back. Everything was was pulling me back, so the, I had no doubt. So no, I, I never, I never strayed. I've been very constant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's amazing. And for you, did you like find any other? So your dad obviously played a big part. Was there any other person that inspired you, or any shows that helped you along the way, or was it like just one on one with nature you learned? Um. Yeah, it was it was very direct, and yes, it's probably a fault of mine that I'm not easily influenced by many people or or many things. That's something that I've worked on changing through my life. Um, so, as a you know, I often reflect that as a foraging instructor, I sort of grew up and out of nowhere. Really, I never worked with anyone else or. Uh, knew anyone else who didn't think like I did so I yeah I developed on my own Um, but influences I do remember the the Richard maybe food for free book was on the bookshelf in uh, mum and dad's house and that was out um, constantly pouring over the on reflection maybe not very useful prints of some mushrooms and plants were pretty good actually but the mushrooms not so good and um, yeah wishing so much that I could uh, find all the things on those pages. Uh, interestingly, now I've probably found many of the things on those pages in my locality, but that is the joy of foraging is it's a, um, it's a journey that never ends. And you can, you can, I uh, can't remember who it was, uh, Jack Hargreaves, I think a, a quote that you know the countryside better by walking the same mile for a lifetime than a thousand miles or something to that effect i.e if you live in a locality and you really get to know it deeply over your life you'll discover far more than you you ever will by uh wandering all over the place mm. yeah that's really true even looking at one tree for its life you know mm. how it can change uh, and what birds uh, keep coming back you know yeah oh uh, absolutely yeah that that depth of knowledge you get um, yeah, there's a lot obviously to be said for seeing uh, uh, yeah, I probably haven't traveled enough but I've certainly uh, benefited from the, the constancy yeah yeah there's actually one like there's one plant or tree I suppose you know the Philadelphus mm. yeah um, would that be classified as a tree or mm. a bush yeah. Because it's yeah, quite huge, like it's really big and tall, you know, it's nearly as it's as tall as the cherries above and everything. But it only flowers for like a little bit. It's near my door at home, but it's only a couple of weeks. I think it flowers and I'm like obsessed with it. <laughs> yeah, you're there smell, to catch it. Yeah. Smells like I know when it's there or coming, like it's coming around the corner and then it's just gone. And I'm yeah. like, we have to wait another 12 months. <laughs> you know, yeah. Nature and that's, so that's the anticipation that makes it so sweet, isn't it? As with so many things, another another thing lost in our, you know, the instantaneous gratification that we experience for most things. Uh, we forget the, the sweetness of waiting sometimes, don't we? Yeah, 
yeah yeah and it's amazing like I actually like when it's there I like stick my head into it every morning and like, <laughs> it's amazing like I'm like this is real perfume you know yeah um, it's great Absolutely. just it's do great. what the bees do and then you'll be happy you know yeah do what <laughs> they do go where they go yeah. follow the sun um and so right now at the moment we're in November um so this would be a prime mushroom foraging time right yeah that's right so um yeah we're in the, the the changeover change of guard really in mushroom varieties from the late summer autumn varieties um now changing into the winter varieties of fungi although we're in a strange situation here in the southeast of england because we've had very very mild temperatures. so although the autumn varieties are leaving us more and more and there's less of them around we haven't really had the cold weather to bring in the winter specialists like the the wood bluets and the velvet shanks and the oyster mushrooms um although we have got many many millions of winter chanterelles which fill the woods around us at the moment and they're a great mainstay you can always rely on them as a hungry forager or as a a, a foraging instructor so they're, they're brilliant things mm. And would you like in terms of fungi, how like when you incorporate into your diet, are you eating so many amounts per week? Like, are you very, you know? Well, that has that has changed somewhat um, over the years. So my initial interest in fungi was purely um, as food. But as I've gone on, I've become very interested and studied a lot um, about medicinal mushrooms as well and as part of that studying it was really brought to my attention just how amazing mushrooms are um, for health um, just eaten as a food so you know that whole idea of food as, as medicine and because they're such an amazing source of insoluble fiber they um, they really support a very very healthy microbiome so there's amazing studies that were done in China with thousands of people and just showing basically the regular consumption of any mushrooms at all um, just improves longevity, um, things like instances of cancer, um, yeah, all sorts of things. So basically the more mushrooms you eat, the longer you live is, is the simple way to look at it. So um, in answer to your, your question, um, I now try and incorporate mushrooms into my diet and the diet of my children as much as possible. And that's when things like mushroom powders and things like that become really, really useful because you can dehydrate mushrooms, powder them and chuck them in soups or sprinkle them over pastas or whatever. And it's just a, an easy way of getting mushrooms into you. I mean, along with all the other wonderful normal ways you might eat. Them. So yeah, the answer is as much as possible and more so over the year now. So traditionally, I suppose, um, as with a lot of self-sufficient living traditionally i had main food types depending on availability and time of year because um after going through a long cycle of trying to preserve absolutely everything i eventually got back to the point that it's better to eat mostly seasonally and preserve the things you really want to eat um but mushrooms being the exception to that really that i will now make sure that there are mushrooms dried pickled fermented um preserved in whatever way so that they are available throughout the year because they're just so health giving and obviously are only available in a relatively short window of the year so yeah i'm a, a massive convert to uh, regular consumption of mushrooms 
Yeah. And I think as well, you know, for some people, there might be a little bit of fear around it. Or I know in Ireland, anyway, people are very like typical of like, I'll buy my potatoes, my carrots, my cauliflower. And like, it's like venturing out like, oh, my God, what could that do? But like they are necessary for our diet and there's so many nutrients that we're lacking. So say for somebody who has a little bit of fear about it, like your regular field mushroom or button mushroom, like where could the next step be for them? Like how could they take the next step? Yeah, yeah and that's it's such an important point. And um, as an educator about wild foods and mushrooms, particularly this is something that I am addressing day in, day out with my work. So every mushroom forage starts with hearing about people's experiences and where they're at with mushroom foraging and that that you cite there that general fear which is very deeply bound into our culture in in uk and ireland as well that is still very very present and so many people are interested fascinated they want to step over that divide of fear and start foraging but they are they're still held back and i've gone for, i've been teaching for around about 19 years now and I suppose initially I was probably a little bit more like the uh, the traditional mushroom books you read I was all you must be extremely careful and you know drumming the fear of God into everyone just because I really didn't want anyone to make a mistake well I still really don't want anyone to make a mistake but I realize now that my job really is to hold people's hand and to take them safely and confidently into mushroom foraging um and that's that's where I see my role now. So I that I see myself as that kind of um, someone to help over the divide and then, and then increase knowledge, obviously. But yeah, back back to your actual proper point. Um, that's the whole thing is um, where to start is really important. So I always I, I preach and I, I won't do the full spiel, but I preach being what I'd, I'd call a uh, a proactive rather than passive fungi forager. So I describe passive fungi foragers are people who go and try and identify everything all of the time and that almost always leads to total overwhelm uh just supports the fear that they already had because they're totally confused um they look up in a book and it looks like it's the right one but then they read the small print and it says oh but it looks rather like this poisonous one and they they panic and go on to the next one as a result people tend to eat nothing so that's why of course a passive fungi foraging trying to identify everything and getting totally overwhelmed and I say be a proactive fungi forager, to go out and look for a very small number of uh, easy to recognize, good to eat, safe mushrooms in the right time of the year, right habitat. And just ignore all the other hundreds or potentially thousands of ones there. Leave that for another day, lifetime of work. Um, so, yeah, those small steps are really important and the really good ones to get started on. As you say, field mushroom. Um, is is pretty good and similar to button mushrooms you buy in the shop but probably not the easiest um, of mushrooms to identify um, but things like a, a shaggy ink cap is an extremely easy uh, fungi to identify which um, grows on grass um, winter chanterelles which i just mentioned that we're foraging at the moment in the woods they have some very very positive id features um, that you can home in on and uh, you can forage them with um, confidence also things like chicken of the woods uh, a type of bracket fungi which grows on oak and willow and and often on fruit trees and on other hardwoods as well it, again a really quite straightforward one to identify beefsteak fungus again very safe so there are ones that you can really get going with and probably my 
one of my favorite is in fact the parasol mushroom field parasol they're really big um with some really good straightforward id features and they taste absolutely stunning and i always say to people when i i'm always delighted to show people a parasol on a foraging walk because i say to be honest if you never learn to identify another mushroom you're you've got a good, lot of good gourmet fungi to eat for the rest of your life they're common easy to id big really tasty so, so the ones like that big they can be yeah they can be they can be huge yeah um yeah they're, they're just they're so good um i had a lovely um lady from hungary i think on a foraging walk and she said that when they were kids they used to get them and egg wash them so just deep them the beaten egg seasoned beaten egg and just fry them either side it sounds too simple to really be delicious but i did it and it just it holds in all the all the the moisture and they're really sweet and um, meaty anyway and it just made a, a real meal you know just a bit of salad on the side and that's just a very well balanced fantastic tasty meal so i've been doing that a lot with the kids and they've been loving it so um yeah and yeah it's all very much about just taking those first steps building confidence safely and getting it into it in that way and it's a, it's one of my greatest pleasures is to take people over that divide onto that journey and talk to people year on two years on often people come back lots of times to increase their knowledge but it's just making that start and it's accessible to all of us so it's great you know that's a very long answer to your questions <laughs> no it's perfect um recently there i was walking up the fields and i found about i don't know like eight to ten fairy rings but i'm pretty sure they were the parasols maybe yeah, I mean, they if, if they were like, yeah, if they were rough, them ahead. <laughs> yeah, they live on in sort of rough, grassy environments or you know, unimproved pasture, of, often near trees, but not necessarily. They can be, um, they can be right up the grass, and they they can form rings or groups. And yeah, they they are they can be huge. Yeah, the real giveaway for them, they've got a few good features, but the real giveaway is they have a snakeskin patterning on the long, fibrous stems and a and a ring that moves up and down the, the stem as well okay yeah there might have been some field ones as well you know mixed mixed yeah. around there yeah well some people just call them parasols some people call them field parasols that's the that's the, that's the yeah. trouble with common names i remember reading a book uh, once and it was saying like like our ancestors are back in the day when we had really not much knowledge at all um and they were testing the waters with mushrooms they were saying like that people are actually terrified so i think it's like a genetic fear as well that like this mushroom or fungi could come up in the night and be gone in two days and they're like what's that and then it's gone yeah. and they're like oh my god what was that whereas a plant is more long lasting you know and yeah, yeah. We, we we relate to plants far more easily and i see this time and again on courses people generally find it not too difficult to distinguish between plants there, there are always exceptions like the ones that actually look really similar like members of the carrot family you know the, the um, poison hemlock and the cow parsley is the classic one that it, they are quite hard to distinguish but on the whole people can distinguish them relatively easily but with with fungi people really really struggle and the level of um observation required for identifying between different fungi is a real step up from what people are used to and this is another thing that you have to teach and people have to understand that you can't be casual in your observations about mushrooms um yeah it's um you, you do have to get into that detail but yeah they are they are quite other and i think that that's why they're so linked isn't it to folklore and you know even things to do with uh, religion and 
the way things were suppressed and yeah it's a all all deeply fascinating mm, but there's definitely a resurgence like people want to know like they're like they're mad to know now like you know um they're being called back to it we all are you know those little voices in your head like you know we're all uh, it's yeah. all happening you know which is amazing right uh, absolutely i mean uh, this is something i've been saying for so many years i mean and it's not not particular to me but it, you know foraging the desire to get back to the land of forage is innate within us it's what we've evolved to do we've not evolved to live the lifestyle that we live mm-hmm. um and so that that calling is always there and then um you know there's been entangled life and fantastic fungi on to watch and uh lockdown shook people up a bit and got people thinking about what life might be like could be like or uh you know now with talk of uh economic depression and things like that all these things lead people further on to thinking about getting reconnected to the land and and long may it continue it would be it'll be a very different um place if lots and lots of people get very engaged in it and want to forage and be active in these things at the moment i think we're in a, a period where there's huge interest and fascination um a lot of armchair enthusiasts um but not many people actually doing yes. um it would be interesting to see if if um there was a mass move what that would actually look like but um, we're not we're not there yet but i um it can only be a good thing yeah you hear a lot of like oh i'd love to do that or i'd love yeah. to know about that but then it's you just switch on netflix i'm not saying everybody but like it's too easy like our lives yeah. are so comfortable and we're living from a place of ego and that's not happiness you know um, yeah and I think yeah, a bit well, of, not suffering, but a, a bit of a challenge, like a bit of discomfort is good, you know? Yeah, well, yeah, it, it, some enforced hardship um, is nice on reflection, you know? It's like when I'm out for a walk with the kids and they say they're freezing cold, and I say, well, think how lovely it will feel when you get in and it's warm. I mean, it's yeah. like if you, don't, if you don't know one, you don't know the other, do you? And that's, um, that's an interesting paradox of the uh, comfortable modern life we live with we miss some of that hardship and therefore we don't you know things don't taste or smell so sweet as a result yeah we don't we're not satisfied it's like there's you can never satisfy that craving of wanting and it's just never you know um but i was going to say as well about the mushrooms so if one is to walk into a field and see them um is that a good identifier of the soil? Um, less so, I would say, than plants. Um, so fungi will exist in a you know real wide variety. Like the same fungi will exist in a wide variety of different soil types. There are obvious exceptions. So like truffles, for example, they will only um, be found on alkaline soils. So in this country... On the north and the south downs for this chalk and in Ireland where you've got um, limestone underlying um, the ground. Um, but other than that, I would say, I'm sure there are other specific examples as well, but I would say on the whole, less so than plants. Plants tend to be a good indicator of uh, soil type fungi, I'd just say less so. Yeah, because I tend to notice around here, like the places where I know mushrooms are, that ground 
has very, very, very rarely been turned up or plowed or it's like it's like been that way. I'd say the mycelium yeah. is obviously intact, you know. Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, an amazing indicator of um, in that sense. Yeah. So I, I thought you meant sort of like actual soil, uh, you know, pH and stuff like that. But yeah, yeah, in, yeah, in terms of in terms of understanding whether something is disturbed and how ancient it is, yeah, an amazing indicator because, um, yeah, and, yeah, those those grassland growing ones, particularly the agaric types, you know, the, the horse mushrooms, field mushrooms, um, the ones that we eat, but also, you know, wax caps. I mean, some of them are edible, but, but wax caps, uh, you know, even, you know, liberty caps and mottle gills and uh, and all of them, as you say, if once their mycelial network is destroyed by ploughing or, um, you know, even using fungicides or whatever, then that's done and it takes many years for them to come back. Uh, actually, interestingly, I've been reflecting that a lot recently because our own bit of land was ploughed last when I was, uh, I think, probably 15. So, um, yeah, so about 25, 26 years ago. And I would say just in the last two or three years, it's coming back into well, what I would consider health in respect of um, fungi diversity and and things like that. So, so it it, it can happen, and I mean, really, in, in timescales, that's not so long. So maybe they're a little bit more adaptable than we give them credit for. But it does take a while to come back, and that and that's twenty five years of grazing with sheep and no sprays or any intervention at all. But yeah, now we have a wonderful diversity of fungi again. So it's it's good to see. Mm. and would the mushroom the particular mushroom that's growing as well would that be an indicator of what type of soil and all of that like um yeah yeah to to a certain extent it would certainly um show soil health show that the you know the the life cycles which are meant to be happening are happening that you know there's organic matter getting back into the ground um, you know, that's, you know, that's what the fungi are there doing, breaking that down, the, the grass, the manure, all those kind of things, recycling it, making it available again to the plant. So I, I think, it, yeah, it's an indicator of soil health and that the systems are in place and working as they should be. And it's so interesting, I mean, I was at a talk um, at Kew Gardens and the um, Mycological Society were giving talks there and, uh, you know, no new news as such, but just reminders that I think, what is it? Eighty to ninety percent of all plants on Earth rely on mycorrhizal relationships with fungi, and I mean that's just you know it's huge. You know, it's not just it's not just the odd ones and the odd trees. It is yeah, basically everything. It's the uh, the ones that don't are the outliers. So um, yeah, to see those fungi fruiting there, uh, yeah, it's just evidence that things are going a bit more like they should be, uh, yeah. unlike those terrible arable fields that you walk across that are just crap barren sort of wasty land deserty type environments and you just think oh that's when you start feeling a bit hopeless <laughs> i know and then you hear people saying like i love a plowed field and i'm like yeah. it's not meant to look like that no I, yeah but you know, you know we get yeah no absolutely we get we get it's used conditioning, to conditioning you know it's like we think that's normal you know we're like oh that looks so gorgeous it's well, like i actually yeah. was in um Mallorca in October and I was so impressed I was like I couldn't see any like very rarely could I see like non-tree cover like it was covered yeah 
I was just like, this is amazing. Like, look at this example of tree cover. And I think I saw maybe like two to three areas, like tiny areas where I could see soil. Although it was covered like, I was like, this is amazing. Yeah. You know, and yeah. I was I was like actually shocked, you know. Yeah, and that's yeah, that's how that's how things should be and how things revert. And it as you say, people get used to things and it, it always I don't know, amuses or alarms me that a lot of the landscapes that actually are being people are fighting so hard to preserve are in themselves historically man made environments. So there's a example here on the downs. Although the Downs country, which is, is basically cropped grass, sheep sheep grazed grass on hills, it's very valuable for us, you know, for a, for certain species which have adapted or or, or thrived in that environment. Prior to that, it was a it was a more wooded, shrubby environment, and it was grazed down and cleared and grazed by sheep. But now, as things start to naturally take over and it becomes wooded, they're busy strimming it and cutting it and taking animals up there to bring it back the rights and wrongs of it i don't know i don't know where the balance lies but i just find it a very interesting thing that people are fighting hard investing a lot of time effort and money into preserving a man-made environment and preventing it from going back to the natural environment that it was before it's a yeah it's a it's a question rather than the criticism but i just uh, I, I look on and 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 wonder where the, the right right in all that lies yeah it's mad isn't it yeah it's like we have to use our intelligence and be like, is the planet meant to look like this? You know, just because yeah, we no, grew exactly. up in it doesn't mean it's yeah. supposed to look like that, you know? Yeah, well, and I think that's the great thing about this age is that becoming, I don't know what it is, I don't know, confident enough in ourselves or, I don't know, <laughs> realising the intelligence of, of nature. I mean, we all know it or we all should know it, but I think there's it, that acceptance finally, isn't it, that we can't actually just print our uh, thoughts onto a situation and expect it to work out. You know, I, I think about this with, with bees, you know, when I teach about bees, and we we're talking about the, um, the foundation that the bees are given and um, I say, well, the bees can, obviously they can make their own cells and their own wax, but we give them this foundation so it's easier for us humans. And then I, I use this example. I say, well, also it's possibly even a bad thing because when the dimensions for foundation were worked out, humans thought, well, if we make the cells a bit bigger, the bees that are produced in those cells will be a bit bigger and then they'll be able to carry more nectar. Then they'll be able to make more honey for us. Um, but unsurprisingly what they've actually found is that making the bees be a little bit bigger means they're a little bit more prone to disease and problems like well surprise surprise after millions of years of evolution they had actually landed on the size they wanted to be but we just thought we would just rashly make them a little bit bigger for our own reasons and you know i think that was the norm wasn't it that we knew better than nature and it's a great humbling time where we're saying let's understand the natural environment and let's you know try and work with it and i think that's that's kind of where we're at isn't it with and you know all the talk about mushrooms and fungi that's going on at the moment is very much in line with that you know, sort of harnessing their amazing power and getting in step with them rather than trying to impose our massive intelligence on it all mm. yeah anyway um, going off on one no that's perfect we love them um just go with the flow and uh, yesterday i actually had to <gasps> remove a wasp nest and like 
I have a very strict rule, like I do not disturb nature, you know. But yeah. they were killing one of my colonies, like they were taking them down, like they've killed most of the colony, which I was really upset about. And I was there for days and I was like, what am I going to do? Like I narrowed the entrance. I was doing all the stuff, you know, and I just was like, they're going to go. And in the end, then I was like, no, like it's either the bees or the wasps. And I was like, well, the wasps have to go. So I went in and I, anyway, they, nature was going to do it anyway, you know? So I just was nature helping nature, you know? Um, I don't know if my bees will make it, but I removed the nest and it is actually phenomenal. Like I'm like looking at it at home. Now I have it in a big box, you know, and I'm like, I just can't take my eyes off. And I'm like, this is insane. And, you know, I, I was saying on my Instagram, I was like, I've been to the Louvre and I've been to all these flipping museums in Italy. And I'm like, this is art. Like it is like it's it's so it's like a me. It's bigger than a meter, I'd say. It's so big all the swirls and I'm just like, oh my God, like if people could only see what real art, not real, like everybody can, people can make art, of course, but this is created by like the most intelligent. Oh yeah. Yeah. Species. And I'm just like, oh, it's phenomenal. Like, you know? Yeah, they are amazing. And if you've yeah. ever actually lived close to a wasp colony as well, the, the organization that goes on is phenomenal. I remember having one in the, the roof and, yeah, at some point, where if we got to a certain temperature, they would start fanning, and I could hear them just going, <laughs> and they were you could literally just hear when it, you knew when it was getting warm outside because they they were in the, in their nest making it circulation. But yeah, amazing, amazing things. But the the guilt way for you to take out wasp nests, of course, is to eat them and not not waste them. So that's another field I'm very interested in is uh, edible insects and foraging for edible insects. So. Um, yeah wasps are one of the really good ones um there's a <laughs> i got so <laughs> i could have warned you so <laughs> uh, yeah yeah you could have you could have could have posted it Next um, time. Uh, um i just i was very inspired about eating wasps when i started looking into um edible insects because they do this an amazing thing in japan where they go out into the forest and they get a tiny little bit of fish and tie it onto a silk thread and then put a little um silk red flag at the end of it or a little paper flag a very thin one and they they hold it out in their hands and the wasp comes grabs the little bit of fish and then flies off through the forest to its nest and because it's trailing this piece of silk and a flag they're able to watch it visually track it through the forest until it goes into its nest and then they they dig out the nest put it in a box they take it home and they give it preferential treatment so that they build up a big colony of uh of grubs and everything in it, and then they dispatch them, and then they they eat them. It's an amazing protein source. So, I thought I've never tried the flag thing, but I just thought, what a cool thing to do on a on a Sunday afternoon, go and uh, track some wasps with with flags. But yeah, I'm well into my uh, my ants, and um, yeah, my children have had more than one dessert made out of shield bugs or or leaf bugs, the ones that the flat ones, because um, when you um, well, uh, they're called stink bugs because when you agitate them. They um they give off a pheromone aroma as a as a defense mechanism, but some of them, the pheromone tastes almost identical to fake apple flavoring. Like if you've ever had like a nasty <laughs> sweet that's made to taste like apples, um that's basically what it tastes like. So I've made these kind of funky uh, fake apple tasting like um, set custard desserts and things like that. Which uh, yeah, so it's all all good fun. 
Wow, that's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. I'm like trying to digest what you're saying now. I'm like, I need a second to even think about that. <laughs> but I did I tried see to digest it too much. My, my oh, yeah. Little... <laughs> I won't digest the bugs. Um, yeah. But I was just thinking about the wasps as well, you know, because like, how do they remove them? Do they block up the hole? Because on the nest I had, it was in, in the straw bale and yeah. um, there was one hole and then obviously the structure. There was about six layers of like a high story building of cells and the cells were all quite big like the b cell and then there yeah. was massive like sp spiraled artwork it's just i'm like how and it's the queen that makes it isn't it yeah yeah so well i mean you've obviously come to it late in the season when um they're sort of at the pinnacle as it were i mean that would have all um well, the nest would still be there, but the colony would not be there at this time of year. So I'm imagining it was a month or two ago that you you did that. Oh, no, just, um, I just did it um, two days ago. Wow, and there were still wasps in there? Oh, yeah, sure, because they ate my grapevine, so they were having a great time. And then ah, they were okay. eating all the honey and killing all the bees. Wow, so you've obviously not been too cold there as well, because obviously the colony disbands, but... Yeah, I mean, I think the way they get them in Japan is that right at the beginning of the season, I mean, you, I don't know whether you've seen the very um, early formations of wasp nests, but it's literally just like a, a dome of paper with a, three or four cells underneath it. And that's what the queen makes herself. And then she makes her first workers and then they hatch and create more. Yeah, So in Japan, I think they just they get the nest when it's really, really young. Um, right at the beginning when the queen has just created a few cells and then it's easy to transport and, and put in a box and take home in that way. I don't think you'd have fitted your one in a box very easily without getting badly no. stung. No, it's massive. And as well, like in the summer, I was getting phone calls for swarms and I got one for down the road. They were like, come down, it's in the kennel. And da -da -da. And I went down to the kennel and I went into the kennel and it was, it was a tiny, it was like a little bowl of soup, you know, that size. And it was just so beautiful. I was just mesmerized by the spirals and the colors. And, you know, when you look at it up close, it's actually all different colors. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And well, it depends what wood they've been building from, of course. So, uh, yeah, often with uh, wasps, it would be gray. But, yeah, often you get yellows and tawny brown colors as well in there as well. Hornets, for some reason, seem to often have nests which have far more yellows and, and browns in but you can have that with wasps as well yeah. it's always fascinating to see them sitting gnawing the, the fibers off off wood yeah. it's amazing i'm wondering what wood they were on but are they going to like are they going to like kind of man produced wood or like are they going to trees or do you know what they're well from a from a very casual observation point no study involved but i think they are looking for exposed wood so they don't want anything with bark on so they are generally i see them on either natural dead wood so you know like uh, where you get dead elder for example where the bark is peeled away but yeah but often for that reason on uh man-made wood as well so you you know you see them on picnic benches and garden fences a lot sheds you know those kind of things any any untreated unpainted I wonder because like I've loads of pallets and that's yeah. where like all the bales are on pallets and it's just the colours. I am just like in awe, you know, like it's it's there's even blues in there. That's probably where the pallets are, 
are printed with blue colouring, or you've got a few of those blue palettes. I don't know whether you have them in Ireland. <laughs> we do. In the UK. Well, like it's like just yellow. I don't know. It's just I can't even describe. It's un indescribable. It's just amazing. But um, yeah, I'm just in love with it. Like so, I have it in the shed now. Yeah. I'm protecting it. It's like my go. I want to preserve it. You know. And yeah, I'm wondering, it. like, could I put it on like a board and then put glass on it or something? Or I don't know. Yeah, I think if you keep it dry, that it would would remain preserved. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think just keeping it in a dry, dry environment and stop it from it gets very brittle over time. That's the only yeah. trouble. Because I have a bit of a honeybee. I had one. There was one colony that had no frames. They were just in the box doing their thing. But it ended up being like a male, a male driven. You know, the male was. Oh, yeah, the female worker was laying so it died yeah um, i have the structure on a crown board and um it's just amazing but the thing is there was like pollen left in it so now i was trying to keep it and preserve it but i'm like oh sugar because there's bits of pollen and now there's fungus on it and i'm like oh what do we do with that now you know well the, the wax moth will be the big thing with that once the wax moth get in there it will be all sorts of mess yeah. like how can we keep these magical structures <laughs> well unfortunately probably only by applying some fairly hardcore chemicals and then <laughs> rather go it's against it's against the grain but i'm not it, they are um yeah well um the traditional way of preserving comb like that was to use strong acetic acid so to fumigate it with acetic acid vinegar basically so um that deters wax moth so that would give it a bit longer life if you wanted to show people. But mm. I don't know whether you've experienced wax moths, but they are very destructive. Yes, I have. Yeah. And it was not fun. Um, I actually put two frames into the freezer that had it. But I actually could put that into the freezer. Yes, that's true. But I'd probably have to cut out. It was only a few bits of pollen, but I just wanted to keep the structure because it's so amazing. The spirals, the whole thing is insane. So I could put it into the freezer, maybe cut out the pollen bits or I don't know figure it out i know i'm just a bit attached to them you know answers on a postcard <laughs> yeah but um and how did your honey come out this year or do you yeah, take it, honey or what's your story yes yes i do i mean i am from a i suppose a traditional model of beekeeping so i have traditional well well, well traditional for this part of the country anyway national hives um so yeah i don't use top bar or anything like that i'm on a on a fairly traditional management scheme but i am what i hope to be and would describe as this you know sympathetic beekeeper so yeah i do take a honey crop but i make sure that they predominantly have their own honey for overwintering so um so yeah had a had a good crop we have a lot of oilseed rape um around here uh, as most people do so the first honey crop is always extremely early as for soon as the first um, last oilseed rape flowers go over um, because otherwise it just crystallizes straight in the frames. I don't know if you've had that, but um, yeah, around here you can't afford to wait. So yeah, that's always the first crop is um, oilseed rape honey, which makes lovely cream soft sets of honey. And then we move into sort of uh, the woodland flowers and uh, um, clover particularly. So I had a really nice um, flow on that. But we had a very, very hot, dry summer, which was really too hot and dry, really. So the bees were very active, but there wasn't the flowers or the nectar around, I don't think. But we also have a lot of woodland. And typically, we also get a lot of um, woodland honey from aphids as well, uh, which people always forget a, a major 
honey flow can be from the um, the honeydew from aphids and not actually from flowers at all, which is forgotten by most. Mm, that's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, and it makes some very interesting and strong flavoured honey. So I remember the first time I experienced that was um, in the Black Forest when I was a child, and they have a specialist honey there, which is, well, they don't have a lot there other than pine trees. So uh, once the spring's over, it's all... Um, um, honey which originates from aphids so aphids which are on conifer there and extremely strong tangy yeah most people wouldn't even think of it as honey and that was my first experience and then um yeah we we also get have a lot of sweet chestnut here and likewise we get a lot of honey which has come from aphids on sweet chestnut and that again is a very dark very very tangy you know almost woody tasting um honey so yeah you get, you get a lot of interesting variety i bet the nutritional value in that is amazing Oh, well, you know what, it's that if I live enough lifetimes, it's another project that I want to get round to is the, um, I'm having a mental block now, what's the vastly expensive honey which comes from New Zealand, the... Uh, manuka. Uh, manuka honey, yes, of course. So manuka honey is, it is of course, fantastic stuff um, that does all the things it's meant to, but the New Zealanders have also done an epic marketing job on making an extremely valuable commodity. And a little bit of research soon got me to see that in France, um, sweet chestnut honey is, or, or sweet chestnut has a lot of useful health benefits in itself, but sweet chestnut honey is renowned for its health-giving properties in areas of France. And I thought, I bet if you uh, did some research, sent off some samples, they could find some very active and useful um, ingredients that could be isolated in this chestnut honey that's come from the aphids. Um and if you were so minded, you could uh, market that and um, you could probably make it a really premium medicinal product. So, uh, yeah, mm. okay, I've told everyone now. I won't have to do it. Someone else will do it. Yeah. <laughs> we don't, like, I've, like, I think around here I've only seen a few, like a handful of sweet chestnuts. So yeah. we don't have really, not where I, where I live anyway, there's not really many. But um, another thing I was going to say is that um, in Ireland, I suppose, well, you have in the UK as well, but... Have you seen all the new studies with the heather honey? No, I haven't. No, I am behind mm. the times with that. Enlightened it's me. It's amazing. Um, yeah, they've after after starting to do loads of studies in the universities and stuff, and heather now is being ranked higher with a TPC content than manuka. Oh, really? So they're onto it. Yeah, there it's we go. Amazing, and I'm like. Oh my god! Like the first study I looked at, I was like, I'm just going to research the shit out of this. <laughs> You know, yeah. it's amazing. And I'm like, why are we Manuka if Heather is uh, coming out as more powerful? This yeah. is bon bonkers, you know. And yeah. people are well, people are coming up to me telling me they're buying jars between 75 and 90 euro and they're regular consumers of it. You know, yeah. they're buying oh, no. like every few weeks, you know. I oh, know it's mad. It's mad, you know, because they've they've created their own system, haven't they, of grading and potency and all that. And yeah. That's what I mean. It's an amazing marketing job that they've done on a, a genuinely amazing product so the two together is as you say has got people paying mad amounts but yeah you know that's a, that's a whole thing with everything you know with the with the plants the fungi you know the bees we should be looking locally we all know we should shouldn't we? and that's it's all there powerful stuff all around us all the time oh yeah the ditches are full of power medicine all around <laughs> yeah absolutely um, and for anybody listening that doesn't know what aphids are would you kind of educate us 
Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure I can give you a very uh, scientific definition, but aphids are, yeah, I hope I'm not going to make a fool of myself, very small insects um, that live, um, well, they make their living by, um, uh, yeah, using their mouth parts um, to suck the sap from various plants and trees. They're very, they're very tiny. Um, they usually live in colonies. They reproduce very fast. They are the uh, main food of uh, ladybirds and their, their grubs. And yeah, there are lots of different types: um, green fly, black fly, white fly, and uh, yeah, many, many more. So yeah, they're very, very common, found on all sorts of plants and trees. And they secrete a sugary liquid. So as they feed from the plants, they they process what they want out of it, and they constantly secrete sugary liquid. Um, and that sugary liquid is very prized food source for other insects, so uh, wasps and uh, ants, for example. They actively collect them, and ants can actually be farmers of aphids, as I'm sure people have seen on TV. But you know, you have uh, broad beans in your garden; you will get ants introducing black fly to your broad beans so that they can farm them and look after them. And you'll see the ants running up and down. Um, looking after them and taking their uh, taking the honeydew, which is what the secretion is called. But yeah, also as I was, yeah, I was just referencing that bees also use that as a as a source for sugar as well. Um, so they don't only feed on nectar; they also feed on that honeydew given off from aphids. And so, how could we? How could one see that? Like, would the two insects have to be together, or do they just find it on the tree? What the um, the the honeydew or yeah. How do bees find it? Or like um, other other insects, like does the other insects have to be next to the aphid or can they just pick it up and collect it? Well, I think, um, yeah, I mean, a aphids are fairly ubiquitous over everything in a natural environment. So I guess all these insects have very attuned senses to smelling it. Um, but yeah, it, it, it sort of beads up on the, um, the back side of the aphid, basically. Yeah, it's like a little bead and they go and collect it directly if it's not collected it will actually drop onto leaves um surrounding and there is someone i can't remember who who's actually um gathered some of that sugar and used it for brewing or fermenting or something like that so that is possible has a very fancy name the sugar that comes out of aphids and i can't remember what it is mm, that's very cool isn't it yeah, there is cool. so much going on that we just have <laughs> no clue <laughs> oh, absolutely but it's so yeah nice. that's that's why I say, you know, I want to live for several lifetimes to fit all the things and all the projects in, all the knowledge and learning. Next yeah. time you'll come back as an aphid and you'll really get to know it. <laughs> I hope not. I, I think I might have done something really badly wrong if I come back as an aphid. Although my kids were talking throughout the religion that believes that you come back as whatever you've, um, whatever you've eaten. Um, <laughs> I've eaten a real host of things. So I think there's, there's, a, there's a broad variety of things that I might come back as, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing, isn't it? Um, and you were saying that you do because some of the listeners might be from Ireland, um, and you were saying you do bits in Ireland as well, like. Yeah, that, that's right. So I had the great fortune to meet Courtney, who um, is runs um, Hips and Haws Wild Crafts. Yeah, amazing woman. Um, so. Um, I met her a few years back and ever since we've been collaborating on lots of amazing things and that has had the happy outcome of bringing me to Ireland for work 
and for pleasure. But yeah, from a work perspective, I'm over in the new year um, working on my own, doing um, winemaking courses. So using hedgerow ingredients for winemaking, also charcuterie um, with a particular look at hot and cold food smoking. So about how to make smokers and make salami and biltong and smoke your own fish, etc. things like that. Um, and then also with Courtney doing um, amazing spring foraging activities, also coastal foraging. We've got medicinal mushroom courses coming up as well and mushroom foraging, uh, mushroom charcuterie, which is a cool new one that we're putting on, which is all about how to make things like mushroom jerky and how to smoke mushrooms and how to make uh, yeah, exciting pickles out of them and put them in alcohol and make mm-hmm. sweets out of them. So, yeah, all sorts of cool stuff. And, yeah, and really loving being um in ireland because there is such appetite i mean people really lovely and friendly um but the appetite for knowledge at the moment is just is is on fire everyone is desperate to learn and as a teacher and someone who is passionate there's nothing better than feeling that in a group you can just you can just sense it they 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 want to know they want to learn and it's it's wonderful because people are asking questions all the time and they're just trying to take on as much as you can. And you just feel like giving and giving and giving because it's just such a, such a rewarding thing. So I'm, I'm absolutely loving it. I mean, the the Brits are great, but it's all, um, it's a bit more established that whole scene over here. There's a lot more places to go. There's, you know, there's a lot more going on with it, but it's still just got that real zing of freshness in, in ireland so it's, it's great to be a part of that and yeah I, yeah i feel very lucky to be involved yes definitely and that's why you're here today because yeah. so many people so many people are asking me and i was trying to look for somebody like a mycologist or somebody and people were just like no i don't know enough no i don't know enough and i'm just like i got i say i asked like a handful and nobody I just couldn't get anyone, you know, and I'm like, why are they so rare? You know, and then I want it more. I'm like, don't do this to me. <laughs> and then I don't know your page. I don't know how it popped up. I think it was maybe I was looking at hips and haws and then yeah, I got linked in that way somehow. But um, yeah, well, Courtney's done, you know, done a great job of getting my name and face around in, in Ireland um, where I was totally unknown before. So, um, yeah, I owe her a big big debt and that so i think yeah, a lot of people have come to me through her which has been a which has been a great thing yeah it's great to meet meet people and you know have opportunities like this it's been fantastic yeah that's super um i'm definitely gonna try and like get on something anyways um yeah definitely. i really want to learn more about the fungi um and yeah like there's so much medicine out there you know like oh yeah they're great absolutely. for our that, brains as well, no? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know, the, the research is looking into lion's mane particularly. But then, yeah, when you start getting into the, uh, you know, the psilocybin mushrooms and things like that and the research going on there, and, you know, that's another major field of interest for me. I have to, you know, obviously tread carefully with the, the legal issues, but, uh, you know, have a very sort of respectful uh, medicinal slant sort of fascination with, with all yeah. that as well and that's you know another area that i'm looking into uh educating people about as well because that's a huge amount of interest in yeah. that as well and such powerful medicine and life-changing medicine so that's you know i'm doing offerings in that as well um you know respectfully and carefully and and legally uh, but yeah such appetite and it's yeah such an interesting field but yeah there's so much you know 
as we were saying earlier, so much powerful, powerful medicine around. Um, and it's, yeah, it's knowledge is the key to tapping into that. And it's, you know, it's literally our feet on our doorstep in the fields around us. It's, uh, yeah. And is that, I'm just curious now, because I find it so crazy that something could be growing in the ground as it does, like just through our natural processes it's coming up but then it's illegal if it's picked and i'm just curious are there other ones or is this like it's just yeah yeah so um yeah so any mushroom i'm pretty sure that irish law is very similar to uk law but any mushroom containing psilocybin or precursors to that um uh you know or any derivatives from that um they are they are all illegal and considered to be class a drugs there used to be the loophole in uk at least that they could be um picked fresh so like if you were found with them fresh then that was fine but once you dried them or processed them with tea or something then that became illegal but that's that's been closed so to to handle them to possess them to pick them anything it's it's all illegal uh, it does seem mad and um, beyond that you move into slight gray areas so you know courtney and me to a certain extent, you know, we work with, with fly agaric mushroom a lot, and that has psychoactive properties as well, but it's not an illegal mushroom. And then it becomes a question of intent, and that becomes interesting. So if you possess it and use it with the intent of getting psychoactive effects, then it's illegal. If you have it and use it as Courtney would, or as I would more um, for medicinal and usually external medicinal applications, then it's it's perfectly legal in a case so it's an interesting gray area um and there are controlled plants as well you know narcotic type plants as well but you know there's plenty of powerful ones of them kicking around as well you know the uh, opium poppies that grow in in all of our gardens you can make some pretty potent stuff out of that without very much knowledge and um yeah it's <laughs> yeah it, and as you say it's a very bizarre thing putting these type controls on things that occur naturally and grow around us but um yeah, I think, you know, you know, things are moving on and, and changing slowly. And I fully expect mm-hmm. to see that over the next few years, laws will gradually change surrounding that. Whether they will change with the picking of what we'd call magic mushrooms, I don't know. But certainly like psychedelic therapy, I think is, you know, on its way to being um, yeah, legalized in a controlled setting. Whether that then goes on to mean that uh, magic mushrooms um, get a bit of reprieve we'll see but it would be nice to hear it's certainly going to change the conversation and that's why at this point in time i'm starting to teach about and talk about these things more because um, the conversation is is really moved on um, and i think so many people see uh, you know their fantastic potential rather than previously just seeing uh, you know rather misconceived conceived yeah. dangers um, so yeah it's a very different environment a very exciting time to be living in that respect i think yeah, and I think a lot of people have left the whole religion sphere and they're looking for that first-hand kind of knowledge that's within ourselves, you know, like maybe we don't need to follow something, you know, maybe we can yeah. actually look inside of ourselves, you know, and yeah, it's just amazing. Um, And another thing I just thought of was like, because I just find it fascinating, the systems that we are conditioned to live in and I'm just like, imagine if somebody looked at the willow tree and was like, oh, my God, there's aspirin in there. Let's make it illegal. Like, you yeah. can't touch the willow tree. Like, oh, yeah. It's just crazy. Like, you know, I'm just yeah. like, what? Or even more crazy. Look at that fizzy 
fizzy uh, apple juice in there. What's that contain? Oh, alcohol. Let's make that illegal. That would be, <laughs> that would be uh, but yeah, that one, that one got past them far, far too long ago for it to be, to be, to be, uh, to be controlled. And that's the madness of it, isn't it? The uh, Which apple the, juice, sorry? <laughs> apple juice. Spark, uh, bubbling apple juice, fermenting, yeah. making alcohol, I say, yeah. you know, um, you know, if that had only just been found, would they? Uh, would the? Would would that be being controlled? Most likely, but yes, yeah, that one got through a long, long time ago, and it is interesting, isn't it? Culturally, what we accept and what we what we fear, and uh, yeah. how and how and when that shifts, and we're definitely at a, a shifting shifting point. Yeah, yeah, and I think like when people see your work and connect to your work and all of this and the wild and the wild that's in us, like essentially you know, we are like quite domesticated and it's like when we see that wildness or that naturalness, we're drawn towards because it it's like going back. Oh, my God, like maybe that's the way I'm meant to be. And then the yeah. intrigue and the curiosity comes and we're going back there. But I think it's just slowly and um, it's like embracing that wildness because there's nothing wrong with it. Like it's essentially who we are. We're just people are afraid of it. You know, they're just like, I want to be comfortable in my big house with my TV. And it's like, what if all that was ripped away from you? Like, what would you do? Like, how would you survive? You know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have this conversation with my kids. So, I mean, I think I was just watching the latest David Attenborough and, you know, being hit in the face with climate change again. Um, I'm just saying, you know, to my kids, it might not be your generation. It might not be the next generation. But at some point, humans are actually going to have to be able to look after themselves like properly look after themselves something bad's going to happen and no one's turning up in a helicopter to come and pick you up sort you out feed you clothe you you will live or die depending on whether you're actually able to light a fire or go and find some food and and, yeah. and things like that you know and it you know maybe it sounds a bit survivalist or or whatever but i i don't think it is i can't see how i can't see how as i say in next generation or generation after the generation after it's got to happen at some point yeah and of course is it and of course is happening you go to places in the world and there are people who are living or dying depending on how self-reliant they are so yeah, yeah it's not that mad a concept is it but yeah we we have it we have it easy and we're all we're all susceptible i'm as susceptible as everyone else i'm i'm constantly disappointed in myself how easily i'm swayed to ease and comfort and and all those things you know not not in a recriminating way not like maybe I once would have been I probably would have been a lot harder myself once but I am just reminded that you know even even me you know having lived almost as self-sufficient as you can teacher in all of these things you know <laughs> I'm still I'm still swayed by the things that's where everyone else so I I I feel I um I understand the predicament that everyone's in there's never any judgment but yeah we do need a bit of a kick i think to get us out of where we are sometimes yeah definitely um yeah thank you for coming on today if there's anything else you'd like to share or anything or where people can find you here's your moment <laughs> it's my moment I, I will seize it um, <laughs> well I, I would like just to reiterate uh, before we close just to say I, I've been delighted to be here thank you for listening to my ramblings for what feels like <laughs> quite it. a long time you're, uh, <laughs> you, you're very interesting and in inspiring yourself and uh, bringing bringing things out it, it's, it's great so um, yeah, I, you know I'd love to hear from anyone not only 
through a work capacity, but if people are interested in anything I've been speaking about or have any input they'd like to give or any views, I always love to hear from people. So, um, yeah, I have a website, which is ruralcourses.co.uk, which um, I can be contacted through. It's not very sophisticated, but it, it works. <laughs> um, I'm also on Instagram, so that's rural underscore courses. I'm on Instagram and I'm on Facebook as well on on rural courses um so um yeah i'm there and easy to get in touch with and as i say I'd be delighted to to hear from anyone and yeah just thanks again it's just been a been a great chat i didn't really know what it was what it was going to be about i'm not sure whether you got many useful hard facts out of me that anyone can actually actually use but <laughs> um it's been been great to uh, be able to share some ideas and yeah have a chat so thanks very much Thank you. And definitely, yes, I love to listen back um, and I can share um, on the Instagram as well, the core or the the name. Um, yeah, beautiful chats and we're moving forward. Um, yeah. Folks, if you've liked this episode, please give it a share, send it to a friend um, and also to the patrons. Thank you for supporting every month. If you can support, please go on to patreon.com slash catchkate. And we'll chat to you all very soon for another lovely interview. Ciao.